1: Hello, and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. We're attached to things. Our dwellings are packed with items we rarely throw out. Things have traditionally given us comfort, but they also give us status. The wealthy often collect things for no other purpose than to own them. But in an age where the great majority of us have too much stuff, is it not time to end this obsession? Should we all engage in a radical call? Or are things our only link with the past, and unnecessary part of who we are? Joining us to debate the status of things are behavioural scientists Paul Dolan, senior lecturer in psychology at Leeds Beckett University, Steve Taylor, and British broadcaster and anthropologist Marianne Orhota. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, ii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. I'll now hand you over to our host for this debate, Eliane Glazer.
2: Hello and welcome to this debate on the status of things. So should we end our obsession with possessions? Our speakers now have three minutes to put their case, starting with you, Marianne. Okay, thank you and good evening to you all.
3: Okay, yes, we are drowning in stuff. I think we live in peak thing. But, even in a secular world, I believe that things are sacred. Yep, sure, get rid of the junk, get rid of the stuff that you don't want, but a radical cull? No. If it means something, that might be something good, it might be something more complicated than good. I say, keep hold of it. Literally, keep hold of those things. Yes, we live in a capitalist world that is driven by creating desire and demand. We're facing inflationary pressures, which means that it is your duty not only to put the bunting out this weekend, but also to go and buy stuff because otherwise the economy's screwed. Sure, but I would say that a future free of objects is going too far. A future free of objects is to... I think, basically, profoundly misunderstand what it is to be human, how it is that we create meaning. If you have a world that is basically free of objects, free of things, free even of clutter, I believe we move closer to a world that is devoid of meaning. Stuff is the stuff that builds networks of connection between people and places, between the past, the present and the future. It connects us, it earths us, it weaves us into a tapestry. It's how we write our stories, literally written into the objects that we surround ourselves, the objects that we gift, the objects that we sell, that we buy, that we collect, that we curate. When you look at archaeology, what you see is also that things of the past, things that belonged or touched the lives of people from the past, that it's the things, not the history books, not the kind of grand arching narratives, but the things themselves that reveal the details, the intimacies, but also the inconsistencies of how people live their lives. Because it may be the case that the Vikings converted to Christianity in, pick a date, the early ninth century, but then actually, if you go metal detecting in certain places, bits of Yorkshire, or you look at the artefacts that might be in your local regional museum, there's a much more complex story behind them, a complex story where people are worshipping old gods and new gods, where people are combining in the present sense, contemporary Britain, stuff that is entirely rational because we're rational, secular kind of science types, but also stuff that is profoundly irrational. I'm sure you can pick of your own examples. So I say, be messy. I say, keep the clutter, keep the stuff. I don't believe in the eat clean, live clean, curate your feed. I say the details are the beauty of life. Yes, stuff used to be all about status and connection. Now stuff is easy, it's cheap, it's quite hard sometimes to get rid of stuff. But let's not make it a moral judgment whether you have stuff or not. Stuff is what makes you human wherever you are in the beautiful rainbow of humanity. So yes, declutter, but no, Don't dehumanise. Power to the stuff.
0: I don't want to be puritanical, um, but I I do believe we should move beyond uh, possessions. Um, In moderation, I'm not saying we should throw everything out. Some things have a utilitarian value, some things may have some sort of nostalgic value. But but I think um, we've been deceived by our culture for the past few decades by the materialist ethos of our culture, which associates happiness with the acquisition of material goods and possessions and wealth. We know, and Paul may be talk about this, but we know from research in psychology that happiness does not lie in the acquisition of material things. It does to a certain point, but once your basic needs are satisfied, it doesn't really matter very much, however rich you may become. In fact, research suggests that um, people who have the strongest materialistic orientation tend to be unhappier than others, whereas people who live a life of voluntary simplicity tend to be happier than others. You know, it's, it's a bit like eating when you're already full. You know, if you've got what you need, why do you need more? It doesn't satisfy you, it just makes you feel bloated and sick. that's an analogy another another um, another point is um, if you look back at the history of our species we've spent 95 percent of our time on this planet as hunter-gatherers and hunter-gatherers live a mobile lifestyle you know we would have stayed in the same place for maybe a few months and then up sticks and moved elsewhere so in those terms you know possessions would have been a burden to us our ancestors would have lived lightly so when econ- economists or politicians sometimes imply that it's natural for human beings to acquire more and more, to want more and more, that's not actually true. You know, in our, in our sort of instinct, if there is any such thing as instinct, it would be to, to not accumulate too many possessions because it would have been a burden to us when we moved. And indeed, um, contemporary hunter-gatherer groups who live the same lifestyle as our ancestors, they tend not to be acquisitive either. They tend to live lightly. And they don't really have an ethos of personal ownership. They tend to own things communally or just use things communally. So in those terms, it, I don't think it's natural for us to acquire things. And I think that's why it feels so great when you offload things, when you declutter it. It feels liberating, it feels fantastic, because in some way it's right, it's natural, it's right. We're not meant to be burdened by too many possessions. Possessions also take up our time and attention and our energy. I was reading about uh, Jerry Seinfeld, the comedian who apparently owns about 95 cars, and I was thinking, you know, that's like two MOTs per week. <laughs> And it's, a <laughs> it's like constant repairs, insurance, breakdowns, worry about cars being stolen. We don't need that kind of complexity. So we need to um, live simply. Also, for the sake of the environment, you know, every material good that we consume or use has an environmental impact. So we need to move towards voluntary simplicity in the future. So I guess the first thing to say it depends on whose obsession
4: it is, right? I mean, we're, we're probably talking, almost certainly talking about very rich, affluent nations, and probably very rich affluent people in those nations. Of course, if you're in poverty and if you're in poorer parts of the world, economic growth, the buying and selling of stuff, is one sure way to be able to feed and clothe your children and families. So, I think we need to place it in the context of a very affluent you know, kind of setting that we're in now. And if we do that, it actually reminds me of the work of Thomas Feblen. I don't know anyone who's trained in economics, but that was my first port of call in academic disciplines. And he wrote a book on conspicuous consumption in 1989, 1899, God, 1899 which is about buying stuff for status. And that's often, that's often what we do, right? It's so we can show it off to people. Um, and there's a number of attributes of status-seeking consumption. Um, It needs to be visible, people need to see what you buy. It needs to be scarce, obviously not everyone can buy it. And it needs to be a very weak association between quality and price. Lipstick is a really good example. And clearly, that kind of consumption has spillover effects for other people's welfare. Um, And so it's unsurprising that some of the data, not all of it, shows the negative spillover effects of other people's status-seeking consumption. Um, Interestingly, when a lottery winner wins in your neighbourhood, there's an increase in people filing for bankruptcy. When other people around your neighbourhood buy faster, more expensive cars, maybe they own 95 of them, you're more likely to want to do that yourself. A lot of the benefits that we get from consumption come from comparisons to other people. So clearly, from a social welfare perspective, that kind of status-seeking consumption will be harmful. But like everything, it's just everything I say when I teach, context matters. And of course, it depends on the kind of stuff that you're buying for the kinds of reason that you buy it. Um, and, And often we create narratives around the kinds of consumption that we morally judge to be good and bad. So buying a car, for example, will often be seen as a very bad material consumption. Uh, sometimes it is. But sometimes the experience of driving is why people will buy a car. Sometimes the experience of watching a big television is why people buy big TVs. I say that because when I did a piece for The Guardian on what makes me happy a decade ago when Happiness by Design was out, I spoke about my very big telly. Um, and uh, the, very, the very tolerant left-leaning Guardian comments section were, were not particularly enamored with my big telly especially as I had the audacity to say that I don't read novels as well, which was really quite uh, <laughs> insulting. But there is, a, there is a class lens, actually, as a serious point through which we look at how people live. Um, and I'll just finish on that point. I think it's important that we remind ourselves of the moral judgments that we make that often come from a place of our own privilege um, and not from the experiences of other people.
2: Right, so we've heard your pitches now. We're gonna debate the issues. Um, And the first section of this discussion is, are things an essential part of who we are? And if so, why? And I'll start with you, Steve. And I guess, is it worth drawing a distinction, perhaps, between consumerism and objects that really have meaning to us, personal objects, we look around our house, anyone who's cleared out a relative or a parent's house after they've died, those mm. those objects really have nostalgic and positive associations and are bound up with Memories. memory. So should we draw that distinction, do you think?
0: Yeah, I know what you mean, but but you mentioned this before, that possessions are associated with the past. I think, Marianne, maybe you mentioned that. And that is one of the issues that, you know, in spirituality, for example, everything is based on living in the present. You know, we all know that it's very beneficial to live in the present. That's the the basic principle of mindfulness, giving you a full attention to the present moment. And one of the issues with, with possessions is that they belong to the past, which isn't a bad thing, but if you orientate yourself too much towards the past, then you lose sight of the present. So I think in order to be fully present, you do need to let go of possessions, and you do need to be firmly focused on your present experience rather than the past.
3: I don't think you can really make sense of your present unless you do understand your past, because otherwise you're sort of floating In a nihilistic soup, an (laughs) ahistorical soup. (laughs) I mean, even if it's difficult, the way to live comfortably, sort of happily, you know, be in that present moment is to have made peace perhaps with your past. But sometimes that requires having that, I don't know, the guy ropes and the tent pegs that make you know who you are, who you could
2: be or where you've come from. Do you think perhaps there's been a historical shift that in the past our possessions were to do with memory, family, um, things we inherited um, from our ancestors and so on. Nowadays, our possessions, our gadgets, are about being in the present perhaps in a bad way that we're sort of scrolling through our social media. Do you think there's been a sh- historical shift? I think, I think since time immemorial,
3: your hunter-gatherer from the Paleolithic was kind of eyeing up the other guy's wolf skin, going... Oh. Ah. Oh, you kept the head, did you? Right. <laughs> Interesting choice. I've got another one back in the cave. Uh, like I, th- I think that that's just something essential about humans. And, and the point you made about hunter-gatherers sort of live lightly, I do accept that, that is true, compared to you know the boxes of crap that are in my house, for example. But you can look at Neanderthal sites and people have curated stuff. They've buried loved ones with things. There's, a, there's a, a site in Germany where they've arranged bits of hacked off stalagmite into a circle. And so they spent time with things making meaning in the world, in the material world. And I think if we entirely lose sight of that, we lose sight of what it is to be human. We're, we're just complex creatures and we tell our stories through things.
2: And Paul, I think, because you're a professor of behavioral science, I think about nudge theory and, and, and how advertisers nowadays are persuading us to buy things that we didn't even know that we wanted or needed. So are identities now being formed by, by our surroundings, perhaps our consumerist drivers who are pushing us to be who we, who we don't want to be?
4: Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I mean, it's clear that advertising <laughs> I mean, works to sell you stuff often that you don't want or need to buy into a particular lifestyle. It's, it's always an interesting question of whether historically that was, you know, how, how much has changed, because I do think I, t- I, take, the, I take the point about we've, we're naturally comparative creatures. That's part of the human condition is to compare ourselves to others. So the basis on which we do that may, of course, have changed over time. But the fact that we do that is pretty much part of who we are. I just want to say something quickly on the role of nostalgia, because I'm someone who who generally does live in the moment. I don't really think very much about the past, but the evidence is quite compelling on the role of nostalgia. It's a a good part of human well-being to be reminded of times and places that felt better or good. Um, And I will just say something about mindfulness. as someone who doesn't like it very much, um, is that there's a very... And of course, actually, the really important point to make about that is that there's a lot of differences across individuals, and and anyone who tries to prescribe a one-size-fits-all approach is selling snake oil. But there is a nice paper, Causal Effects of Mindfulness Makes People More Sanctimonious.
2: Steve, would you like to respond? I'm just saying, well, it's
4: evidence. I mean, uh, it's,
0: not, I, mm. I, it's not me, it's evidence. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I agree with Paul. There is, there is a, a, there's a danger in any endeavour of becoming sanctimonious. And yeah, I've met, I've met spiritual people who are very sanctimonious and they're very attached to their spirituality and to their, their idea of themselves as a spiritual person. But there's no, there's, no, there's no denying that there's tons and tons of evidence of the benefits of mindfulness. Even in situations of pain, mindfulness has been, has been shown to be beneficial in alleviating the symptoms of illnesses. So, yeah, it's a question of balance. Everything is a question of balance. I mean, I agree with you that we do need to be reminded of who we are. We do need a kind of structure to give us a sense of identity and meaning. But, I mean, the the problem is when we're too orientated towards the past, the problem is when we're too orientated towards the future. We need a sense of the future and the past, but we need to be rooted primarily in the present.
3: And I guess the... May I? Go ahead. Um, That idea of sort of like being focused too much on the future ties into peak stuff that you're always... Trying to acquire, you're always aiming towards the better car, the bigger telly. I want to do. I do want to ask you about why you like your big telly. Um, the, th- because because you look bigger, you're not focused. Not focused, sort of in the present either.
4: What? <laughs> no, I meant that. I meant that in a good way because you're yeah, yeah. in my living room.
3: Oh right, I see.
4: Yeah, that's what <laughs> I meant It was kind of meant to be a compliment, I but it came it out really. Ma- <laughs> it came out really badly. Right, let's let's go back. Edit that bit out. <laughs>
3: Nice. Um, so yes, no, I, I take your point. That, um,
0: yeah, is that striving, is it striving to acquire more? That's future base, isn't it? Wanting more. It's always wanting more from the future. But
3: a bit of striving is good,
0: right? But yeah, striving is good in some senses, but not in, in terms of like striving to acquire more things that you don't really need. Or.
3: If it's striving within a community, maybe not so much the bankruptcy because your neighbours just won the lottery, but if you see the, the people who, I know this isn't quite how... The world works but you know the people who've got jobs and their kids work hard at school and they've got the big telly to simplify life enormously to a point of perhaps you know nonsense that is that's a useful thing
4: so uh, this is essentially Hurstman's herstman's tunnel so imagine yourself in a traffic jam with two lanes both of which have stopped the other lane starts moving before yours does what goes off in your mind well, two things. First of all, I'm really pissed off I should have been in the other lane. That's the relative effect. But also, there's a signalling effect that your lane might start moving soon. And so when we look at relative effects of other people's consumption, and other people's income, most of the time, in most of the world, it's the, I wish I was in the other lane. But in, in certain cultures, in certain countries, in poorer parts of China, in India, there's a signalling effect. When other people do well, it's a signal that I might do too.
2: But there's also a question coming back to identity about do, do our objects say something about who we are as individuals or do we live in communities where the group influences the possessions that we own?
3: Absolutely, because you form your identity by having that reflected back to you by others. I'm sure you'll disagree on that, um, <laughs> um, but you also form your identity by identifying who is them not us. So if those people over there have flash cars and that's not your kind of a thing, then you may well go to take a, a kind of a strong, a stronger position in opposition to that. Mm. We're not the flash car kind of people. We're the tumbly down, you know, fix it together with a bit of, um, you know, twine and uh, gaffer tape and drive around, you know, north of Scotland with it. We're those people, you know. And counterculture,
2: I guess, would be an example of that. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, Steve, I was going to ask you, because in a way, mindfulness and meditation and minimalism, it's almost become an industry in itself nowadays. And some people might use that affiliation to meditation practice as a way to signal their identity. So even though they lack many possessions and they go for minimalism, Hmm. subscribing to that culture might be a way of signaling who they are
0: possibly yeah but i would say that that's not really an authentic practice there's this phrase i can't remember who came up with this phrase but spiritual materialism it's when spiritual people use spirituality in a materialistic way to sort of you know project an image or to you know to collect um, you know collect experiences or move towards enlightenment but that's not the way it should be you know, you should practice spirituality with no real goal you know just for the experience of well-being that it gives you in this moment so i think really you know spirituality is about letting go of external identity really and uncovering your authentic essential identity you know buddhism talks about uh relative happiness which is externally based on things or events or possessions but there's also an an absolute internal happiness which doesn't depend on external things it's just a, a natural quality of being which you uncover and the more you focus on external sources of happiness the less access you have to this internal happiness
2: thank you quickly come back on that, Marianne.
3: I had that experience. I was making a documentary in Tibet and I was interviewing a baker in Lhasa and he had been working incredibly hard to use the, the barley flour, the roasted barley flour that's sort of traditional there and work out ways to make it rise with yeast. It's hard to do because you're at high altitude. And he'd done it and he'd sort of like put together this like really offbeat cafe that sold a really quirky take on traditional Tibetan foods. And I said, you must be really proud of what you've achieved here. And he looked utterly blank. Just, it didn't make any sense to him, that question. He was like, no, that, but we had to cut and like carry on the interview. Yeah, because it just <laughs> didn't make any sense being proud of what he'd done because he hadn't done it even though he was surrounded by what I saw, the fruits of his labor, it just, he had a different worldview entirely and it, it did stop me in my tracks, yeah. Wow. Wouldn't have wow. thought to put yeah. on Instagram. His but. stuff, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> his stuff wasn't his to kind of own or claim. Mm, yeah, mm, so fair point. Wow.
2: Yeah. Okay, so we're gonna move on to our second section of uh, this discussion, which is um, about you know, these advocates from the past, were they right to um, advocate getting rid of our stuff? So we're familiar with Marie Kondo now telling us to throw out our stuff. Um, Gok Wan suggesting that we only, should only own five outfits. So we're constantly being encouraged to declutter and, and have less stuff. But how far should we actually take it? Because if we look back into history, Jesus and Gandhi, figures from history, um, have also advocated that we get rid of things. So, were they right, Paul?
4: It's hard to argue with Jesus and Gandhi, <laughs> isn't it? I mean, that's, um, set myself up for a bit of a fall with that, <laughs> wouldn't I? Um, best not do that then. But, I mean, I do, I do think it's really important to Account for the externalities of our behaviour, good and bad. Right? It's not just about whether, as individuals, we should be living in particular ways. It's the impact of our actions on other people. And as I say, I mean, the gains from economic growth at lower levels of income are significant. It literally saves lives. So, if we are going to move away, and I, I completely agree with Steve that we're, you know, we reach a point where we, where we have just enough, and we, and we keep saying, more please, more please, and, and there is a point at which we need to rein ourselves in and to calm down and chill out and pay attention to life's experiences more rather than the accumulation of more stuff. If we are going to do that, we need to create markets that provide productive goods and services that generate growth of a different kind, that will enable people to, you know, get out of lower levels of income and so on, and poverty. And that, that does actually remind me of two things to say, that as, well, one that we've really spoken a bit more about, but w- that we should speak a bit more about, which is the sustainability of the consumption. I mean, I think that's, 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 that's a really significant point. Um, it's not consumption in itself being bad, it's if it has significant environmental impacts, we need to be much more careful about that. And so, considering about sustainable consumption, and, and we can all do that by um, having fewer children, Um, That's that's a really significant way to reduce our CO2, or maybe getting rid of ones that we already have. That's uh, that's (laughs) that's an even better one. And to reduce inequalities. I mean, that's that's really there's there's actually a really cool cool paper that looks at um, search terms on Google by U.S. states based on the inequality that exists within those states. And there's greater searches for status goods, for consumption goods, for brands in the more unequal states. So consume the shit out of life, but do it sustainably and in ways that reduce inequalities.
2: Steve, interesting that list of um, advocates that I mentioned. <clears throat> I mean, Jesus and Gandhi. It's interesting thinking about the values that lie behind the injunction mm-hmm. to get rid of stuff. I mean, Jesus and Gandhi, clearly, you know, a very different value system perhaps to Gokhwan and Marie Kondo. But I sometimes wonder when I'm listening to people talk about decluttering, it's almost like mo- modern therapy. That mm-hmm. If you tidy mm-hmm. up your flat and get rid of... All your clutter, you'll actually feel yeah. better, and increase your well-being. So, what about the values lying behind
0: mm. these? I, th- I think th- this Jesus and advice. Gandhi were onto something. Yeah, I think they. <laughs> I think I mean, every every spiritual tradition emphasises um, voluntary simplicity, you know, minimalism, not having too many possessions. I mean, in Buddhism, for example, Buddhism is all about moderation. The Buddha was a man of moderation. He followed the middle way between excess and asceticism. So I think that's, you know, that's, that's quite sensible. It does feel fantastic when you let go of things. I took tons of stuff to the charity shop the other day, more, all my kids' books that they no longer read and old DVDs that we don't use anymore. And it felt great. It always feels great to let go of things. And partly other is I think, because it's natural for us to live lightly, but also it's, a kind of, it's like a, a detachment, letting go. It's kind of liberating. You know, we feel that we need attachments to strengthen our identity, but actually it's always liberating to let go of attachments. I once interviewed a guy who, um, he was moving from from Manchester to London. So he packed all all, all of his stuff in a van and decided to pop up back to his flat for a cup of tea with his flatmates. And of course, by the time he left, he came out again, the the van was gone and all of of his belongings were gone. (laughs) That's Manchester for you. That's Manchester for you. (laughs) But um, he said for for a few hours, he felt devastated. He was was just shell-shocked and distraught. But he said, by the time he went to bed that evening, he was filled with this tremendous feeling of liberation. He thought, wow, I don't need these books and records. I don't need this stuff. And, he, and it, was, it was almost like a transformative experience for him. He realized that he didn't need to attach himself to material things. And it changed the, uh, the, way, the way he lived after that.
3: I don't know if that would be a sentiment echoed by people who've lost all their belongings because of a flood, or because of a sewer, you know, leaking raw sewage into their flat, or someone whose life has been devastated by mm. a natural disaster. I mean, you can kind of handpick your examples. Yeah,
0: you? I don't think that's a common experience, but I think it is. You know, I've met other people with similar experiences. People not just letting go of possessions, but letting go of things like success and status and achievement. That can be liberating too. But it does remind me,
4: I, I used to own a lot of vinyl, like serious amounts of, of, of vinyl, and I got fed up with carting it around every time I moved house. And in the end, I sold it and got CDs instead. And, it's th- and I really wish I hadn't. <laughs> I seriously wish I hadn't. Because, because CDs are shit anyway, but also because... But what's really important about that is the nostalgia, is the experiences associated with putting the records on and the memories that we have of those experiences that get lost when the stuff goes. So, again, it's kind of, you know, getting rid of stuff, but wisely. I think that's the, that's the key thing. And anyone who's got my records. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Marianne.
3: I think there's a grave danger in this performative decluttering, where it becomes a, a kind of a virtue stick to beat people. I, I've got people nodding, going, oh, I don't want to get rid of my dog-eared books and I'm keeping my vinyl. I say keep it. I came across a survey that was done by Lloyd's Home Insurance. So, yes, they've got skin in the game. And they were (laughs) advising people to, you know, increase their home insurance to cover all their delicious stuff. Um, But the thing that was really interesting that came out of this survey was the stuff that is basically uninsurable. Your picture that's dog-eared and curled at the corners that's stuck upon your fridge that your niece drew for you. And you can't really remember what it is because the felt tips were, you know, worn out a bit. It's the, you know, the cup that your gran used to have her tea out of. It's that, that stuff. You can't just take a photo of it and say goodbye. I say keep hold of it, properly keep hold of it. Um, in this Lloyd's insurance survey thing, it said that most people have about nine boxes of stuff that if they fessed up, they would call clutter. And I thought, shame on you for making them fess up. They should own it and be proud. <laughs> but the other thing that really struck me in this survey was... D- I'm <laughs> not on commission. I was going to say, you <laughs> made this survey really... I amazing, it was yeah, a, really su- yeah. a really good survey, really interesting survey. Not really in the way that they meant it to be, which was, you know, like buy home insurance. Um, but anthropologically, uh, one in five people hide things that are sentimental and precious to them from their partners. So things like a a card or a letter that was given to them by an ex or something like that. They just don't want to get into the conversation, but they also don't want to get rid of the stuff. So they hide it in the bookshelf. If you get rid of all your books, where are you going to hide it? (laughs) Okay.
2: Well, let's get personal now. I mean, Steve, you must have some things that you... Guiltily poured.
0: Uh, Yeah, Um, not really, actually. (laughs) I had a weird experience recently. Well, it was a few years ago, but I just thought about it a lot recently. When I was, um, I started writing when I was about 16, I wrote lots of poetry, short stories, a few novels, two or three novels, unfinished, but partly written novels. And I stole all my my writers in a box together with lots of letters from that time of my life. And so everything that I wrote from the age of 16 to 23 was in a box at my parents' house in the loft. So then I moved abroad. I went to live in Germany for a few years. And of course, I came back to my parents' house and uh, I said to my mum, what happened to that box in the loft? He said, well, I threw it out. I said, Really? Yes, I, d- I thought it was... You um, didn't say really, though, did uh, you? You said no. something else. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> <was> something unrepeatable. <laughs> so I felt devastated. Um, but, but afterwards, a bit like that guy, mentioned, really, I, I felt a kind of sense of liberation. Do I really want to read all these terrible poems that I wrote when I was 16, all these rubbish half-written novels? So in a sense, it, I feel quite liberated because I don't have those uh, belongings from that period of my life.
3: Would you have liked to, if just a couple had found their way to salvation and that actually could go, oh, yeah, I was... I was I was kind of, I don't know, really good, really rubbish, full of myself, whatever, you know. I'm sure you were really good.
0: Maybe, maybe. I don't know. It would be, Maybe I'd be surprised and they were actually quite good, but I don't think so.
2: <laughs> and Paul, if not yeah. the TV, what yeah. would you be willing to give up?
0: Uh, if you yeah, had the I time to I would have
2: set ta- kids at, some, uh, at
4: one point, but um, <laughs> probably not Not now. <laughs> They've been around too long. Um, what would I give up? I, I, I wouldn't, I, I actually don't have a lot of stuff at home anyway, you know, clutter-wise. You know, clothes, if I haven't worn them for a year, then I don't keep them. I do think giving stuff away is really, is really good, good point, Steve made, though. I mean, if you are going to get rid of anything, find a home for it. Um, phew, it's a boring answer, isn't it? I can't really think of anything that I, I would get rid of. Um, CDs? Don't yeah, have them anymore. I know, you just use Spotify. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh. Would um, your
2: family agree, do you think? Or I think, oh, God, cupboards full of. No, we haven't got. Pools, we we, we actually haven't
4: got, very much, we, we, we haven't got very much stuff at home. I don't think the kids have got a great deal.
2: <laughs> Marianne?
4: Certainly not parents that look at. Uh, what would you.
2: Them.
4: D- yeah. um, <laughs> I don't think there's any. <laughs> Do you have like a, a really
3: carefully myself. curated collection of something really odd? <laughs> I feel like maybe you would. Do <laughs> so you think
4: I would? Is that what you think? <laughs> okay, <laughs> well, it's interesting yeah. you would think that of me. Um, I don't know what I've got curated. Uh, <clears throat> no. I don't know if we've got anything. What you, I don't know. I'm trying to make something up now, make myself <laughs> sound interesting,
2: but no, nothing. If you had time to <laughs> declutter, what would you get rid of? Do you know what? Whenever
3: I go to a charity shop to, to give a bag of stuff over, I end up coming out. With <laughs> <laughs> so so last, literally last weekend, I went into, um, it was like a charity furniture shop. We were looking for a, a kind of wardrobe. We thought we buy secondhand. Don't want to increase the, you know, stuff in the world. I came out with a little set of wooden mushrooms, like little toadstools. All they're going to do is sit on the windowsill and collect dust. But <laughs> I love them. They're brilliant. Someone gave me a Toby jug for my birthday. I was made up.
2: <laughs> <laughs> OK, well, let's turn to the future. So would a future with a minimalist, anti-consumerist ethos actually be a happier one, Marianne? Um,
3: no. Ooh, I don't know. Take out anti-consumerist. anti-consumerist. Let's just sit with minimalism. Yes. Yeah. Minimalist, no. So I think there's definite, there's definite truth in the idea that people who are, are focused on curating a kind of a luxury lifestyle or luxury equals success equals happiness, then you're onto a loser. You're not gonna be happy. But I think by attempting to ascend from the messy and material reality of our messy material lives, we lose something of ourselves. And I think it is really easy to have lots of stuff. Stuff is quite cheap. It might not be good quality stuff. It might not be stuff that lasts, but you can go to uh, your local supermarket and fill up with stuff. You could go to a charity shop and get a lot of stuff for, you know and a change from a tenner. So keep your stuff, be selective perhaps, but I think um, moving towards no things is to lose sight of how we tell our stories. And we potentially deny our loved ones a way of them telling stories about us complex messy stories that are the things where you've got your chipped plate or your chipped cup that is pretty rubbish and if you did give it to the charity shop they took it out because it's not sellable but it means an awful lot to us because we're messy irrational emotional material creatures
2: and Paul, I mean, here about charity shops, we're all told we should reuse and recycle. We know this, but actually green consumerism is yeah. on the rise. So how can we be nudged or how can we nudge ourselves into making better decisions for the future?
4: Yeah, I think it's a good question. I think being made alert of the of the impact of a particular consumption item will be good. I mean, information doesn't always do, do the trick. It needs to be transparent and salient and, and very clear and intelligible to people. But we could do more of that, I think. We could do more for that. I think it's interesting that... What you're saying about stories because one of the things we we, we don't have very good data on the role of conversations in people's happiness and well-being it's not doesn't lend itself to the kinds of quantitative analysis that that we typically do in happiness research but as many of us will be aware our well-being and happiness is located in the conversations that we have about things and about experiences and I think it's 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 thinking about ways in which those consumption items become experiential Um, one of the reasons some people may know this evidence that we think that Um, spending money on experiences is for people's happiness better than spending it on stuff is because of the conversations that follow you know when we come to a festival like this we talk about it a bit more afterwards when we buy a pair of shoes there's only so much you can say about them and so if we're going to consume things then I think we need to be reminded or remind ourselves that it's in the conversations that we have about them that, that, that we'll experience well-being
2: and I'm glad you mentioned experiences because that has been a big shift. But I wonder, Steve, you know, it, almost as if experience industry is also on on the rise. <laughs> that mm. it, all of our time is being, in a way, commodified by the kind of need to make memories and capture um, experiences and and um, you know spend money on on every minute of our time, make sure it it has value in a consumerist sense. Mm. As well. But do you, right. but would your happy future be? just kind of yeah doing doing less of that um commodification of the present and just you know staring into the middle distance
0: Possibly. I mean, I think we need to focus on being rather than having and wanting or even thinking. You know. There's so much happiness that comes from just being that we forget because we're so focused on gaining things or doing things. You know, it's a shame that, you know, most people's free time now is so commodified and so filled up with entertainments and distractions and activities. Because actually, you know, the, for me personally, anyway, the deepest well-being comes from not doing anything in particular, just lazing around, you know, not watching a screen or maybe just walking around leisurely in a natural environment. That's where true well-being is. That's when you really connect with your innermost self, not when your att- att- attention is externally focused. So I think any, you know, any movement towards a future without wanting or having is, is, a, you know, is a very desirable outcome.
2: But just to follow up on that, I mean, they're, they're great apps now to, to help you in your meditation. I mean, where do you sit on those on, in a way the consumerification of meditation. Does that get people into meditation or does that sort of stop you really just doing nothing, staring out the window, as you've been saying?
0: Well, I mean, if it's done authentically and properly, meditation is not consumerist. It's about moving away from those external identities and external desires. It's about sort of basically about slowing down your mind it's basically about slowing down the surface of your mind and attuning to deeper aspects of your own being of your own consciousness and once you've switched into that then you really you don't need things to the same degree you begin to let go of things because you've you've found an an internal source of happiness which is deeper and stronger than external sources and once you've gained access, access to it you know it's always there you can always return to it
3: do you not think that humans are fundamentally makers though we use our amazing, tactile, smart hands to make stuff. Because if we make, we want to give, we want to share, we want to use. And to separate from things is to n- deny that essence of ourselves, which is about making.
0: I think we are partly makers, but I mean, we are human beings. Being, we actually, we're named human beings. We don't spend much time being. We're kind of ironically, paradoxically named. but We could be called human doings or human makings, but... Yeah, it's a a question of moderation. We do have a a very creative side of us, but we also should have a, you know, an an inactive, restful side of our nature, which doesn't engage in activity all of the time.
2: Right, and thinking about making makes me think, you know, tech is such a big part of this, isn't it? That in in a way, Silicon Valley tells us to, to be minimalist, to get rid of all the clutter and the books and the CDs and everything. But actually, ironically, then we buy more stuff in the form of gadgets. So tech's big part of this story. Exactly, and then they sell you a bit of a
3: cloud rather than <laughs> a piece of paper. It's not actually denying the stuff. It's, it's co-opting your stuff. That you're not going to... If you want to sketch, you, you don't sketch on a notebook. You sketch on your iPad and then... I, I mean, you could delete the file, and that really is you know losing stuff but that's like walking into your parents putting your your 16 year old poems on the bonfire (laughs) i mean there's 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 some there's some tension there's some breakage there i think to kind of have something where you can say i did this this is something of me some of my most profound experiences on archaeological digs have been to hold in my hands something that has been shaped by another person's hand the oldest artifact ever discovered in in the uk it's a hand axe made by a species that isn't even human probably um uh, no, no it's human but not homo sapiens from about 800,000 years ago in norfolk an area called Haysborough, and it fits perfectly their hands were about the same size as ours and it's sort of a, a multifunctional tool hold it in your hand and it's perfectly balanced and it's got a cutting edge and it's got a hammering base and it just sits and you have that profound connection mm. of someone who amazing. is like you, but not you. And there's a, a, an amazing just sense of, of history and present and future and connection. And if they chucked that in the sea or smashed it up because they didn't need it anymore, I I mean, frankly, I would have been devastated. <laughs> I wouldn't have known it existed. Uh, people didn't do that. They didn't kind of carefully, you know, clear up after themselves. That's what archaeology is. It's, it, it's mostly rubbish. Rubbish dumps of people's stuff that they chucked out or dropped or misplaced or buried incredibly carefully.
2: But it is always of stuff. Great. I'd love to talk about the value of rubbish dumps. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Rubbish is everything. Yeah. Great. Well, let's thank our speakers, <laughs> Mary-Anne Stephen-Paul.
4: Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Have
0: a cool. Cheers. Thank, for you. That.
2: Thank, you. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, ii.tv, for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.